Good morning, everybody, and welcome to worship on this Remembrance Sunday. We are here from many nations and many cultures, and this day will mean different things to different ones of us, depending on where we grew up and what our experiences are. We are here to remember all who are victims of war, military and civilian, in all nations and on all sides. (coughs) Some words from Psalm 146. Praise Adonai, my soul. I will praise Adonai as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God all my life. Don't put your trust in princes or in mortals who cannot help. When they breathe their last, they return to dust. On that very day, all their plans are gone. Happy is the one whose help is Jacob's God, whose hope is in Adonai, his God. He made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He keeps faith forever. He secures justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. Adonai sets prisoners free. Adonai opens the eyes of the blind. Adonai lifts up those who are bent over. Adonai loves the righteous. Adonai watches over strangers. He sustains the fatherless and widows, but the way of the wicked he twists. Adonai will reign forever, your God, Zion, through all generations. Hallelujah. Just a few words of explanation as we come to our act of remembrance. Some words are printed on the sheet and will also appear on the screen, which we will join in saying. Um, I will say the bits that are in the light type on the sheet or the white print on the screen, and we all join in with the others. At the end of that, there is a a familiar word from uh, the poem to the fallen. After that has been said, after we have joined in saying we will remember them, we will hear the last post played for us by our guest trumpeter, and then we will keep the two minutes of silence. And during that time, some pictures will appear on the screen. These are pictures to do with remembrance and pictures to do with reconciliation, drawn from different nations and cultures, and may help some people to focus. If you prefer to um, keep silence with your eyes closed, that's also absolutely fine. Um, When that finishes, and it will be symbolised by a picture of a poppy appearing, we will all sit down again, and the choir will sing for the fallen as the end to our act of remembrance. So can I invite those of you who are able, please, to stand now as we share this act of remembrance. We are in the presence of God. We commit ourselves to work in penitence and faith for reconciliation between the nations that all people may together live in freedom, justice and peace. We pray for all who in bereavement, disability and pain continue to suffer the consequences of fighting and terror. We remember with thanksgiving and sorrow 
those whose lives in world wars and conflicts past and present have been given and taken away. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We will remember them. first reading is from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Now go to the town of Zarephath, near Sidon, and stay there. I have commanded a widow who lives there to feed you. So Elijah went to Zarephath, and as he came to the gate of the town, he saw a widow gathering firewood. Please bring me a drink of water, he said to her. And as she was going to get it, He called out, and please bring me some bread too. She answered, by the living Lord your God, I swear that I haven't got any bread. All I have is a handful of flour in a bowl and a drop of olive oil in a jar. I came here to gather some firewood to take back home and prepare what little I have for my son and me. That will be our last meal, and then we will starve to death. Don't worry, Elijah said to her. Go ahead and prepare your meal. But first, make a small loaf from what you have and bring it to me, and then prepare the rest for you and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The the bowl will not run out of flour, or the jar run out of oil, before the day that I, the Lord, send rain. The widow went and did as Elijah had told her, and all of them had enough food for many days. And as the Lord had promised, through Elijah, the bowl did not run out of flour, nor did the jar run out of oil. The second reading is from Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. As he taught them, he said, Watch out for the teachers of the law, who like to walk around in their long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace who choose the reserved seats in the synagogues and the best places at the feasts. They take advantage of widows and rob them of their homes and then make a show of saying long prayers. Their punishment will be all the worse. As Jesus sat near the temple treasury, he watched the people as they dropped in their money. Many rich men dropped in a lot of money. Then a poor widow came along and dropped in two little copper coins, worth about a penny. He called his disciples together and said to them, I tell you that this poor widow put more in the offering box than all the others, for the others put in what they had to spare of their riches, but she, poor as she is, put in all that she had. She gave all she had to live on. Leading worship on Remembrance Sunday is, for me, always a huge privilege. 
and a huge responsibility. This week I've been in dialogue with a few other friends who are preachers and I said that I was relishing the challenge and they said they were not relishing the challenge at all. There is something about our personalities, I guess, how we feel when faced with this balance of privilege and responsibility. The wise preacher will approach the task tentatively, humbly, and aware of the potential to cause huge damage by a careless word or a flippant remark. Conscious of the fragility of reconciliation, alert to the vulnerability of those into whose lives they will speak. Above all, the preacher needs to offer a word that connects with the lives of their hearers, people of different ages and experiences, diverse political opinion and varied understandings of the world in which they live. For us as a multi-ethnic congregation, there are people here for whom today is a very difficult place to be. If Remembrance Sunday is to have meaning, it must never be allowed to become just one more ritual in a personalised litany of self-indulgence. Whilst the familiar words and the well-loved hymns and music have their place, we mustn't ever mistake those for the authenticity which lies not so much in the forms that we use, but in the attitudes of our hearts. All around the world, on every continent, wars are still being waged as powerful individuals, organisations and nations resort to violence as a means to approach complex situations. All around the world, young men and women are sent out to die by powerful regimes whose leaders are safely back at home and who judge their lives to be expendable in some greater cause. All over the world and on our doorstep, children grieve the loss of fathers and mothers, women and men the loss of partners, parents the loss of children, the military and civilian victims of war. Whatever news medium we prefer, we're constantly reminded of the human cost of war, the seemingly endless stream of young soldiers whose bodies are repatriated from faraway places, the images and accounts of civilian casualties, often the poorest and most vulnerable in the societies of which they are part. And if we move beyond the officially recognised armed conflicts, then such things as gangland turf wars, xenophobic or homophobic attacks, domestic violence and even religiously justified atrocity seems to be endemic. Whether it's on a global scale in some conflict past or present, or in the long-running feud or grudge between a colleague and a neighbour. There are very few people whose lives are not, in some way, touched by the consequences of humanity's ready resort to violence. 
and it's into this complex blend of realities that the preacher must speak a word. A word of gratitude, maybe. A word of comfort. A word of remorse. A word of hope. And maybe, just maybe, a word of challenge. One of the traditions with which I grew up around remembrance was to watch the televised coverage of the Festival of Remembrance from the Royal Albert Hall, something that has changed dramatically over the years. But it has its muster, as it's so called, of the armed forces, reservists, emergency services, and, importantly, war widows. When I was a child the war widows seemed to be older women. Women whose husbands had died long ago in places I'd never heard of, long before I was born. Don't know if you watched it last night. But now, more often than not, these are young women, and now also young men. People with young children whose equally young partners have died in recent times. In fact, last night there were some parents also represented. These young people, recently bereaved, symbolise the tragedy of war, that on all sides lives are lost, that families are torn apart and the most vulnerable are left to pick up the pieces was really striking last night. They spoke to uh, an RAF person, if I remember correctly, who had been part of the Second World War. And he says, I remember those on both sides. I remember my colleagues, and I remember those who were our enemies. It's about remembering, not about celebrating. Perhaps then, as we think about those widows, those children, siblings and parents, perhaps we begin to find a connection between the act of remembrance, the opportunity to acknowledge the human cost of war, both civilian and military, and today's readings, which come from very different contexts and centre on tiny glimpses into the lives of two widows. Now, we need to be careful here. We mustn't make simplistic connections. There is nothing to suggest that the husbands of either of these women had died in armed conflict. But each of them lived in a society that had no catch net of a welfare system. There was nobody to look out for them, even though one of them was Jewish and should have been looked after under Jewish law. The first story is set in the reign of King Ahab, a very powerful and seemingly corrupt king of Israel who tries to make a strategic alliance with Phoenicia by marrying Jezebel. I'm sure you've all heard of Jezebel. A highly influential woman whose values are very different from those of Israel. The king seems to bend to Jezebel's will. A drought arises which affects everybody living in the land, the good people and the bad people, the rich people and the poor people, 
the powerful and the powerless. Everybody is affected by the drought. And into this context, seemingly out of nowhere, a prophet of God appears. For those who remember Mr. Ben, it kind of reminds me a bit like that. This prophet appears who's not afraid to speak out. And he falls foul of Jezebel. And therefore falls foul of Ahab, the easily manipulated king. For all his faith in God, Elijah suffers the effects of the drought as much as everybody else. And because he's in fear, he kind of leaves home. First of all, he finds a little wadi, and then that water draws up, dries up. And he's hungry, and he's thirsty. And do you know where he ends up? In the very country from which Jezebel came, in Phoenicia. And here, in what to him is enemy territory, he meets a woman who was the innocent victim of the situation. A woman who has no hope left. She's gone out from her home to gather wood for a fire so that she can prepare a literal last supper for herself and her son using the very last of the food that they have. And then they're going to lie down and wait to die. Hers is a story that is echoed throughout history, and maybe especially in situations of conflict. Whether it was the practice of besieging castles in centuries past, or the slash-and-burn methods of the 20th century, destroying crops and homes. Powerful leaders, often far away, make decisions that have severe and even deadly consequences for those at grassroots. Civilian and military, young and old. We need to be very careful as we look at this story, not to rush on, to the miraculous element of the story, as if, well, that's okay then, because God kept this woman safe so that she could look after Elijah. That's too simple a way of looking at it. What about the other widows that he didn't meet? The other children? What about the starving, faithful people back home for whom this did not happen? It's not an easy story to read. And as we look at it, we're asked to do so, searching for hints and glimpses of the virtue that is humility. And we need to do that very carefully because it's easy to make simplistic and, I think, unhelpful connections. But before we do so, let's look at the second story. The setting here is very different It's in the outer courts of one of the most beautiful buildings of its time. It's at the very heart of Jewish worship, the temple itself. An outpost of the Roman Empire, Jerusalem is an occupied city in which any hint of rebellion is rapidly squashed and the perpetrators publicly executed. But for all that, life's not too bad. Jews are permitted to practice their religion. And there is, as far as we can tell, enough food to eat and water to drink. Levels of crime are acceptable, and the Pax Romana keeps things ticking along. 
For the religious elite, it has to be said, life is pretty good. They're free to pontificate about ideas, free to pass judgment about who is clean or unclean, free to debate the first century equivalent of the number of angels that can dance on the head of a pin. And yet, as they are busy living out their very earnest, pious lives, and to be fair, some of them would have been genuinely earnest and genuinely spiritual, despite that, the most vulnerable in society live and die unnoticed. And among them was a widow who came to the temple to pay her dues. We don't know anything about her But it seems to me that just like that first widow, this could have been her last outing. She puts everything she has to live on into the temple offering. What happens next, we don't know. Maybe she has got enough food to last for a while. Maybe she has a small patch of land on which she can grow a few vegetables. Maybe she has a few remaining possessions that she can sell. Or maybe she literally has nothing left. Maybe she has no option but to sell herself as a slave, or even worse. Maybe she goes home to sit quietly and to starve to death. There is, I think, a trivial and superficial reading of these stories that identifies the widows with the attribute of humility. As if somehow, by being poor, by having nothing and no hope, a person is automatically humble. And when it's expressed as blatantly as that, it's clearly ridiculous. It doesn't work to extrapolate from poverty and no hope to humility. Humility has got nothing to do with personal circumstances, which could be beyond our control, but it's totally about attitude. Neither of these widows is inherently humble because she is poor and vulnerable, though each of these widows does demonstrate humility by the way she acts. There's a really important distinction that we need to keep in mind. Hospitality to a foreign prophet, even a prophet from an enemy nation, that surely is a sign of humility. Sacrificial giving to a religious institution, I guess that too is a sign of humility. But it's not the same thing as humility. It's a sign. It points towards it. It isn't it. You might remember, um, I suddenly remembered as I was preparing this sermon, actually saying this earlier this year, that the word humility is originally a Latin word coming from the word hummus, uh, which means earth. And the reason I remembered was because I made a joke about it not being made from chickpeas. Very bad joke, but there we go. Hummus, about being earthy, earthed. Humility carries with it this sense of being grounded, of being located fair and square in the reality of life, with a realistic view of oneself, 
and a realistic view of the world around us, of which we are part. If this is how we understand humility, then it is possible to be both privileged and wealthy without ceasing to be humble. And that ought to encourage us because most of us are privileged and wealthy, at least on a global scale. And it's equally possible to be poor and vulnerable and not humble. You could be so inward-looking and bitter and twisted that you're destroying yourself. To be humble means not thinking either too much or too little of oneself and not too much or too little of other people. And I think this leads us on to what we glimpse in the second story as we sit with Jesus in the temple courts and listen to what he's saying whilst he's looking around and seeing what's going on. Humility forces us to look beyond the bare facts and begin to root them in their proper context. You see, a lot of people would have seen the bare facts of that story. They saw a woman come in, put in a poultry offing that would make no difference whatsoever. That's all they saw. Jesus saw a poor woman giving all she had, in fact, denying herself the essentials. I think one of the aspects of being genuinely humble is that we cannot then be judgmental because we cannot know somebody else's circumstances. But also, if we are truly rooted, truly grounded in reality, this should prompt us to start asking some questions. Questions of ourselves, questions of institutions, nations and states. Questions that are complicated and challenging And not just sitting back and saying, well, actually, do you know what? We're okay. We've got food in the cupboard, money in the bank, car on the drive, whatever it is. We're okay. There's no fighting where we are, whatever it is. We can't be doing that if we're truly grounded, if we're truly rooted, if we're truly humble. Then we can't just ignore what's going on around us. And then I think humility carries within it a quality of kenosis. It's a Greek word that means self-emptying, of denying self-interest for the good of others. We see that in each of the widows, one giving up her food to feed Elijah and the other all she has to support the work of the temple. But I found, as I was thinking about this, I was drawn back to those words in Philippians 2 that talk about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled, grounded, First, rooted himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we're drawn back more or less full circle to where we began. On Remembrance Sunday, we take time to recall the human cost of war. And yes, in a British context, specifically to remember those who've died in the service of our nation. But as the veterans remind us, people of all nations too.
We speak, and rightly so, of the sacrifice they made, giving their lives for our benefit. But, and I say this tentatively and not wishing to disrespect their memory, as Christians, we have an allegiance far higher than any earthly nationality because we are citizens of God's kingdom. A kingdom that is not defined by the edge of the United Kingdom of Great Britain in whatever form it may be at some point in the future, nor the European Union, nor the United States of America. It ignores all that. It cuts across any humanly defined national boundaries. The call for us as citizens of that kingdom is very unlikely to be one to lay down our lives physically, but it's no less demanding for all that. It's a call to be like Jesus, to be humble, grounded, rooted, aware of the world around us, looking past that which is superficial and caring about the most vulnerable in our society. And yes, it goes beyond the idea of nationhood. It takes away such concepts as us and them. It forces us to recognize that, as scripture tells us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The kingdom of God is beyond anything we can imagine. It's good to pause. It's good to remember It's good to be grateful that in times past and still today, women and men will make that ultimate sacrifice in the constant search for peace and justice as humanly understood. It's good, but it's far better when these memories inspire us to seek a greater good, the real peace that only the Lord can give. For what does the Lord require of you? This, only this. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It is nearly a century since a day was set aside for the remembrance of those who died in the First World War. That was a war primarily of armies and navies. The Second World War was a war of whole peoples. Subsequent human conflict has involved political dogma, greed, nationalism and religious fanaticism. Always innocent people have suffered. Let us remembering the suffering of the past and pray for those who continue to suffer today. The response to Lord in your mercy is hear our prayer. Almighty God of our complex world, loving Lord of our daily lives, we pray for peace in our hearts and homes in our nations and our world. The peace which is your will, the peace which we so badly need. We remember today, O Lord, all those who have died in any kind of conflict throughout the world, soldiers who perished in the horror of battle, 
innocents buried between th- beneath rubble in devastating attacks, men, women and children dismissed as collateral damage in their homes and in local streets. Today we remember especially those victims of the two world wars. As we become further removed in time from these events, we still think of our parents, grandparents and even great-grandparents who are directly affected. We remember those who came home with terrible injuries, both physical and psychological, and those whose loved ones never returned. Lord, in your mercy. Remembering the conflicts of the past and the sacrifices which were made, we pray for a world where war is still a grim reality. Lord, as we remember those who have lost their lives in much more recent times, help us to keep alive our own indignation against cruelty and injustice, against prejudice, tyranny and oppression. Lord, hear our prayer for the multitudes in every country who do not want war and are ready to walk the path of peace. May their voice be heard and may they not lose heart. Lord, in your mercy. Lord God, we pray for the leaders of the nations, asking you to pour out your spirit of reconciliation on them. We pray in particular for the never-ending civil conflict in Syria, that the powerful nations of the earth will work together to bring stability and peace. Give them a longing to bring freedom from fear and freedom from want for all peoples. Give strength and courage to those who bear heavy responsibility for the peace of the world. Lord, in your mercy. We pray also for the Christian church called to witness to your love. May your people work with all men of goodwill to break down the barriers which divide people. May those who profess one faith respect those who sincerely hold another and build communities where there is harmony and understanding. Lord, in your mercy. On this day of remembrance, our hearts and prayers go out to all who, away from the trauma of war, remain stricken by the loss of those they have loved. When we lose someone close, we feel that part of us dies as well, but part of them lives on in us. Give us strength to understand, to honour and cherish that gift. Help all who are bereaved and find the same, to find the same consolation in that knowledge of your love, they may honour the past by looking to the future. All of these prayers we bring before you in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.